Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest with me, Dr. Tremper Longman III. He's a biblical scholar specializing in Old Testament, and uh, he's written extensively on wisdom literature, including the book of Proverbs, which is one of my favorites. I try to read uh, at least a book of, of Proverbs every day. My dad taught me that as a kid. Me and my brother continually do that, and it's been awesome. Uh, God's been blessing it. So uh, I'm really excited to have Dr. Longman on because I've read his works on this. Uh, I have a bunch of his books, uh, Oldie But a Goodie, God is a Warrior. I, I recommend uh, that to all of my listeners. But uh, another impetus for, for having him coming on to talk about Proverbs is that Jordan Peterson is back. You know, uh, thank the Lord. He's still alive. He's feeling more healthy. But uh, he's talked about doing another uh, in his installment of biblical series where he talks about the psychological significance of the Bible. And he said uh, he's going to start on his Exodus. But in the meantime, he'll start doing some Proverbs because they're, they're easier to do. So I thought we could preempt him a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, I could bring on one of my favorite scholars and kind of give us the outline uh, and, and some understanding of the book of Proverbs before Jordan Peterson does. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Longman, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thank you, Parker. Great to be with you. Yeah, so uh, we talked about a little bit about the impetus here, but can you can you uh, give us an overview? What is wi- the wisdom tradition in the Bible, wisdom literature? Yeah, Parker, that's a great question, and one that's actually somewhat disputed these hmm. days. Um, I just finished writing a chapter for the future Cambridge Companion to Wisdom Uh, in the Bible uh, on this precise question. And Hmm. um, so I'll I'll give you my answer and then I'll tell you what the issue is. Um, So I do think uh, we can identify uh, certain books as related in terms of their genre and Mm -hmm. call that genre wisdom literature. And those three books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Mm -hmm. Now, some scholars um, think that these books are so unique that they don't have much connection with the rest of the Bible. And I would disagree with that. And others who disagree with it have taken the tact of, of challenging whether there is such a thing as wisdom literature or even a wisdom tradition. Um, And uh, most notably a guy named Will Kine, good friend of mine, a very excellent scholar wrote a book called the obituary an obituary for wisdom literature, <laughs> wow. um, which is that gets your attention done. Yeah, yeah. And I think his, his main issue is, as I say, one I agree with that there is a tendency of people to identify Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes as a genre of literature. And then think it's kind of, as one scholar called it, though he used a German term because he was a German, mm-hmm. uh, an alien presence within the uh, Bible. Uh, I don't think it's that, though I do think that these three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, are all related 
by having as their central uh, feature uh, an aspect of the concept of wisdom. (laughs) Proverbs basically announces that in the first seven verses, that this is going to be a book about wisdom. Uh, Ecclesiastes, I think, is really... um, uh, a wise man talking to his son about another wise man who is called Kohelet or the teacher. And then Job is really a wisdom debate. And just one more point, then I'll, yeah, no, please. <laughs> I'll stop. But, uh, and that is, I also think Will Kine is right uh, that, and he's right about the nature of genre, that books don't have just one genre. Hmm. So, so you got to be a little bit careful if you just focus on, say, Job as wisdom literature, you might not see the connection with lament literature. So uh, a book can have more than one genre. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And actually, uh, your your take on Ecclesiastes uh, that I, I found in this one, The Fear yeah. of the Lord is Wisdom, just blew my mind and opened up the whole book. I, I think you're right. I haven't read a ton uh, kind of debating that, but so far, I'm convinced, and uh, it's been really helpful for me to see, you know, a father talking to his son and saying, here's here's this philosophy that we're going to consider. And then at the end, he says, you know, all things been considered, you know, uh, fear God and uh, keep his commandments. And it, it makes so much sense of, of what's going on. Um, but so sometimes people will talk about wisdom literature as a genre that... Um, transcends just the biblical uh, phenomena and, and actually goes into you know, the Near Eastern uh, religions yeah. and, and other yeah. people around. Uh, what do you think about yeah. that? Is Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say that that's true of every type of biblical sure. literature. I yeah. mean, we have Babylonian Psalms. We have mm-hmm. Egyptian love poetry. We have, uh, you know, uh, not much, but we have some, say, uh peripheral Babylonian prophecy, and we could go on and on. So uh, God chooses to write, uh, to inspire his writers to utilize literary types that were common to the people. He didn't create whole new genres. So yeah, um, we have something very similar in terms of form Mm -hmm. to uh, Proverbs in a whole bunch of Egyptian instruction texts, uh, we have Babylonian texts that bear interesting similarities to the book of Job. Mm-hmm. And I got into Ecclesiastes because I wrote my dissertation on Akkadian fictional autobiographies, oh, wow. which bear a uh, Akkadians, the language of the Babylonians and Assyrians. Mm-hmm. And these, these uh, writings uh, bear a formal similarity to uh, Kohelet's writing in 112 to 127 in the book of Ecclesiastes. So yeah, I mean that reminds us that um God is speaking to uh through the authors to their contemporary audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Walton puts it very memorably when he says the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us but not to us. Hmm. So God right. uses the language Hebrew uh, which he didn't create a brand new language, you know, to, yeah. uh, and Hebrew is related linguistically to other Semitic languages. And so he uses um, similar genres as well. And what's interesting, and this is kind of uh, a, a distinctive quality of wisdom is that um, 
that even within the Bible, we see appreciation for ancient Near Eastern wisdom. So in 1 Kings 4, when uh, the narrator says King Solomon was even wiser than the Egyptian wise men, yeah. The assumption there is that the Egyptian wise men are really wise. You know? Yeah, it wouldn't be a good point otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be a good point otherwise. You'd never hear something about, well, you know, Jeremiah was even a better prophet than the prophet of Baal. I mean, that. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. Wow. So so you mentioned that you did your dissertation on this and that kind of led into uh, Ecclesiastes. But how did you get involved in uh, what is wisdom literature just at, at all in particular, um, in, in particular with Proverbs, but but just in general? What, what made you go that route? Well, you know, that's interesting um, as a uh, to me, at least it's, <laughs> as a young uh, as a young uh, student of the Bible and. Uh, as I say, I did my dissertation um, and at Yale University, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to do a dissertation on poetics or how ancient Babylonian poetry worked and compared it to the Bible. Mm-hmm. But my advisor, W.W. W. Hallow, said, no, I want you to work on these texts, these uh, Akkadian texts, which I then had to translate and then analyze. And it turned out that a uh, number of them, uh, as I say, were in an autobiographical form, just like uh, the preacher, the teacher is, you know, I, the teacher was king. So it bears a formal similarity. So, yeah, and then I compared it in my dissertation to Ecclesiastes. And then uh, uh, Old Testament professor of the last generation, R.K. Harrison, who was the uh, editor of the Nicot series of Erdman's, mm-hmm. He wrote me and said, I hear you're interested in in Ecclesiastes. How would you like to do a commentary on Ecclesiastes and um, Song of Songs? So I wrote the Nightcott commentary in the uh, mid-90s. And, um, and then I just became fascinated by wisdom. And, um, you know, eventually I was asked to do commentaries on Proverbs and a commentary on Job and and uh, so just kept working away at that material, which is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, well, it's fascinating, and, and uh, we're all really grateful for it. So I'm glad that, that uh, God kept you on that track. Uh, putting you on the spot here, do you have a do you have a favorite proverb? Oh gosh, uh, I I don't have a sort of a favorite. Uh, uh, I mean, some I find particularly interesting. Yeah. Uh, like one that says uh, a loud greeting in the morning will be treated as a curse. I mean, it's kind of like, and it's a reminder of how important timing is in Mm -hmm. wisdom. You know, Uh, Proverbs aren't always true. Proverbs are, or to put it more positively, Proverbs are always true when they're applied in the right situation. But if they're applied in the right situation, then you're misusing them. I'm actually writing an article about that now for a journal called Word and World. Mm. <laughs> so. That's perfect. That that one, uh, my dad taught my brother, my brothers, and my sister and I to you know read Proverbs all the time to pray every day for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And uh, so one, my, my dad used to always wake us up 
and hello, good morning, children, you know, and trying to like, cause we would sleep yeah. in and stuff. And finally my brother, my oldest uh, brother got, he was upset by this. And he said, you know, he quotes this proverb to him and says, dad, a greeting in the morning. Like, that's, that's wrong. You taught yeah. me to do that. And so my dad stopped doing that because my brother. <laughs> that's good. Proverbs on him. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're so the, son, the father something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, my, uh, my favorite kind of depends on where I'm at, but right now, uh, uh, Proverbs 23, 23, buy truth and do not sell it Buy wisdom, instruction mm-hmm. and understanding. And I, I quote this uh, anytime I need a new book. Uh, and my wife is is kind of skeptical, you know, hey, it, Proverbs <laughs> says to buy wisdom. don't sell it either. Don't sell my books. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So Good. in seminary, that's been a, a helpful one for me. Right. For sure. Uh, um, so you, you talk about I'm going to uh, I came up with uh, just an, an outline for our talk here and I pulled from. Your uh, another one of your books that you co-edited in uh, Survey of Old Testament. It is uh, an introduction to the Old Testament. All right. You and uh, and Raymond Dillard. And so you talk about in in that uh, the chapter on Proverbs, you talk about being a, a different type of book. Um, you acknowledge that there's no there's a little explicit talk about God and, and no reference to the great acts of redemption or to the covenant. Um, yeah. But that while, you know, this book is, is practical advice, it's practical, um, but it's given in the context of fearing the Lord. Can, can you explain yeah. Um, yeah, how this fits in with the rest of the Bible? Sure. Yeah. And I probably, you know, today would state that somewhat differently. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, but it is true that the book of Proverbs, as you read through particularly Proverbs 10 to 31, has a lot of what we might call practical advice, kind of like, um, you know, lazy hands are soon poor, hard workers get rich kind of advice that don't seem particularly theological. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very similar to what we might call emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. practical wisdom, learning how to say the right thing at the right time, do the right thing at the right time, feel the right emotion, But it's wrong to uh, think of Proverbs as a kind of secular or non-religious book, Uh, not only because there are a number of Proverbs that do mention Yahweh, but because um, we need to remember that um, in the very beginning of the so-called preface, which is Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, it culminates by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of either wisdom or knowledge, occurs a whole bunch of times in Proverbs. Mm-hmm. And so that's a way of saying, you know, you don't even get started uh, being wise unless you're, you have the right relationship with God. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like you build up to that. It's that's where you start. Yeah. And that's the assumption. And then that's taught in another way as well through the figure of woman wisdom. Mm-hmm. So in Proverbs chapter nine, uh, woman wisdom invites all the men and the men are the implicit readers of the book mm-hmm. um, to come up and enjoy a meal with her that she's prepared. And in the ancient Near East and, Actually, even today, if you invite somebody over for a meal, you're inviting them into a relationship yeah. and to deepen a relationship. So, so to to uh, accept women wisdom's invitation, uh, you're accepting 
entering into a relationship with her. Now, at the end of the chapter, there's another woman called Bali who's also inviting you over for a meal. And uh, but her meal, as she says, you know, uh, basically food eaten in secret is delicious. It's uh, and the and the narrator tells us that if you accept her invitation, you're going to die. So, um, so of course, trying to urge you to accept women wisdom's invitation and reject women follies. And if you ask the question, who does woman wisdom stand for? And we'll probably come back to this question a little bit later, but I'll just start by saying since her home is on the highest point of the city, uh, which is where in the ancient Near East, the temple would have been built, uh, woman wisdom stands for Yahweh hmm. and Bali, whose house is also on the highest point of the city, would stand for all the false gods and goddesses who try to lead God's people astray. So, so, um, so, in that you carry forward that that understanding that wisdom is fundamentally uh, connected to a relationship with God. You carry forward into the so-called practical proverbs. So. You read lazy hands are soon poor, hard workers get rich. And and what you should take from that, among other things, is that if you're lazy, then you're acting like somebody who worships false gods. Where if you're a hard worker, you're acting like somebody who worships the true God. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah, that I mean, I've read your stuff before, but but you just unpacked it so well that that wisdom is inherently theological. And and so is folly, and and that they're both competing in the the highest point. I always, I always think of like billboards and stuff uh, uh, with Lady Folly, and she's calling out to you. But I, I didn't really think of, you know, now I have a connection of like the Ashram Pole, and uh, you know, setting it up on all the highest points and in right. competition to God. And so Lady Folly is in competition, yeah, and coming right. out, right, right, for sure. And, and that that's theological, especially like you said in in Proverbs one seven, setting the tone for the book that uh, the the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Uh, of wisdom. Can you explain real quick for anyone uh, listening that, that says, you know, fear sounds kind of bad. I, I grew up in a, you know, evangelifish kind of church. Uh, <laughs> yeah. w- why, why do I fear God? He's supposed to be my best friend or whatever. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I begin by saying this is not the type of fear that makes you run away, mm. uh, but this is the type of fear that you will feel when you're in the presence of somebody you know who is so much greater than you are. Mm. Uh, And it's the type of fear that would lead one, again, not to run away, not to hide, but Mm. the kind of fear that would lead one to pay close attention to what that uh, person, in this case, God said, Mm. he's the creator, you're the creature. Uh, Fear also is the type of emotion which engenders humility and keeps you from pride, which mm. are, uh, and humility is key to being a wise person and pride is poison to it. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I think for all those reasons, that's why the wisdom literature, uh, puts forward fear rather than say love, which mm. aren't contradictory with each other. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it it shows the importance of of having a relationship with God where you understand you're the creature. He's the creator. And you will not only listen, but you will obey. So the true fear of the Lord always leads to obedience. Mm. 
That's a great point. I, I immediately think of uh, of Asland in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and you yeah. know he's he's good, but he's not safe. And, right. Uh, you know, one of the girls, maybe it was Lucy, I forgot who who was coming to a stream and was trying to ask him to like surrender, you know, and back off so that she could feel confident uh, drinking. And he says, you know, I'm I'm not going to back off. And, well, have you ever eaten a little girl? I've eaten lots of people, you know. But he's yeah. not he's not menacing. He's just that's what he is. He's powerful, and and there's like a right. holy kind of reverence going on. Yeah, yeah, and and reverence or awe might be a good other way of translating the Hebrew term. Um, the only reason why I and and that's one of the issues, of course, is that uh, languages don't line up with each other in a way that you can easily just plug in an English word for a Hebrew term. You often have to qualify it. Uh, but because I see this close connection between uh, what I translate fear and obedience, when I think of reverence or awe, uh, I think of wonder. And of mm -hmm. course, we are supposed to have reverence or awe um, for God. But but wonder isn't the kind of emotion that at least I put together immediately with obedience but mm. but some people if you know if some people uh find awe or reverence a good term i have no real objection to that i just the old living bible back in the mm. 60s uh which by the way i'm on the i'm the senior translator for uh the new living translation which yeah. is a full translation which replaces so i have the great privilege of working on Proverbs and the other wisdom books and the Psalms mm -hmm. to produce that translation. Um, the old living Bible said respect for the Lord, and that's much too weak. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of a sixties soft peddling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Uh, well, before we go any further, Dr. Longman, uh, what is wisdom, uh, especially in, in context of Proverbs, like what, can you help us define wisdom, uh, proverbially from from the book of proverbs <laughs> well yeah i i mean i i don't have a real quick short sentence definition mm -hmm. i i rather like to talk about wisdom as having three state three aspects and all three are essential we already talked about the practical mm -hmm. we already talked about the theological mm -hmm. but there's also this ethical dimension that uh, we need to be mindful of. It's Proverbs 1, 3 talk, uses three sort of central Hebrew ethical terms. Um, yashar, which is virtuous or some equivalent. Uh, uh, shov, I think it's uh, Mishpat, which is justice, and uh, Dedekah, which is righteousness. So wisdom is is connected to justice, is connected to righteousness, is connected to virtue. Mm -hmm. The wise person is also a uh, is a good person. So mm -hmm. um, so so I, I I should come up with a handy one second. <laughs> <laughs> That's next book. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, I I love the three. I I read a lot of John Frame, so I see threes everywhere. And. Well, uh, well, John Frame was my theology professor when I was in seminary. Uh, oh, did you go? Were you in Philadelphia with him? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I went. To, I think I had. I would have had him as a pro 
Fesser, you know, 1975 to 78. And then I came back as uh, after um, in 1980 as a professor at Westminster. That's where I taught for the first 18 years. And mm-hmm. he was there for the first year. And then he went out to Westminster West in his Escondido and then ultimately uh, still connected with Reformed in Orlando. But John Frame is a wonderful thinker, had a big, big influence on my my thinking. So uh, a lot of props to John. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. He listens to the podcast, which is oh, insane. So, so yeah, he'll hear that. Um, so, so we got some, so we got th- three perspectives as, as Dr. Frame would say, uh, practical, ethical, theological. And then, uh, another thing that, that you drew out in, uh, the fear of the Lord uh, is wisdom is that you mentioned already, but EQ and IQ, yeah. um, yeah. and emotional intelligence and, and, um, I, IQ, whatever that is, um, yeah, intelligent quotient, yeah. is what quotient. there we go. See, you're a wise man there. <laughs> uh, so yeah. does, does Proverbs emphasize one over the other? Are they both at play here? Do you have you? Have you yeah, you have thought it out. I mean, I read the book, yeah. but yeah. 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 Um, well, you know, they're not completely, totally different ideas. But when you think about IQ, you think about uh, matters of fact, you know, are, um, you know, somebody, uh, it's the type of, well, whereas wisdom is more of, of a skill of living, more of a, um, you know, knowing how to navigate the difficulties of life, um, how to respond in a um, beneficial way when you run into the pitfalls of life, um, and uh, and and so um, emotional intelligence is. Well, it, there are other terms that are that are equivalent, like street smarts or social skills. Um, And, um, and, you know, David Brooks, I don't know whether you ever see him on PBS news hour or anything, but he he wrote a really good book called the social animal Mm. that, that talks about, he's not using biblical, even though he is a Christian, he's thought about those Mm. issues, but um but yeah, so that's that's what I have in mind. And what's interesting, <laughs> I know I was waiting, I was delaying tactics for <laughs> what I wanted to say. What's interesting is that studies have shown, so that you know, psychologists, sociologists have studied this issue, and they've shown that you know, somebody with a high IQ doesn't have there's not a strong correlation between that and success in life, yeah. which which by which you mean having good, deep, rich relationships, uh, friendships, family relationships, or um, getting and keeping a good job. There's just not a good correlation uh, yeah. with between that. And there is between uh, people who have um, what are measured as good emotional intelligence. And so Proverbs is a book that's trying to teach the people of God how to be emotionally intelligent. Mm. And, and there are good benefits to that. Um, they're not guaranteed benefits. We might talk about that later, but, um, but Proverbs tells us how to live in a way to get to a desired conclusion, all other things being equal. But before I leave this subject, for those of you 
with high IQs, uh, don't despair. You can have a high IQ and also have a high emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, but we probably all know people who are just incredibly smart, but just can't seem to function well in the world. And and so again, Proverbs is a book that is trying to help people, um, you know, uh, navigate life better. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, last kind of uh, preliminary before we kind of get into the outline of the book. Uh, I, again, I love frame and in my head, I always got threes and I see this, this different language and my Hebrew is really bad. I, I took one semester, uh, just the, the intro. So I, I see uh, in the English, there's wisdom, knowledge, and understanding over and over and over. And I just wanted to see, you know, uh, from, from the horse's mouth here, is there, is, is, are those using, are, is the, the author and authors of Proverbs, are they using wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in the, in the Hebrew? Are they con- conveying the same point of those used synonymously or are they getting at different aspects of, of wisdom yeah. or knowledge? Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to give you kind of a complicated answer to that. All right. Uh, which is, first of all, theoretically, they're almost certainly not saying exactly the same thing. Okay. So theoretically, they're not saying exactly the same thing because uh, languages don't necessarily have true synonyms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's inefficient for a language. So there's always some nuance or emphasis now, unfortunately, uh, we're not uh, ancient Hebrew speakers, so we don't capture all the nuances, but we can maybe do a little bit of speculation based, but it, but there are some methodological dangers to doing what I'm about to say. So the word uh, understanding is bina, and it comes from a verb, bina, which means to to understand, which may have more of a, it may be tending more toward, uh, toward the intellectual aspects of it. Uh-huh. But, but, um, and the same thing, but, but again, all these terms in Hebrew are not purely interested in the accumulation of facts or some mm-hmm. kind of intellectual knowledge. They all have an experiential aspect to it. So, so, um, so on the one hand, I would say that, but, but I would see them as sort of, even if they're not purely the same word, just saying the same thing, they are overlapping sets. Yeah. So, That's helpful. I, I I still, I'm going to do a a deep dive on that and, and look back in your work as well. And some of the others, uh, because it seems like there could be like a conceptual, there could be yeah. like a, a practical, and then like a, a personal. Right? Yeah, I, there there could be emphases there. I wouldn't make a big divide between them, but I would also say uh, if you want to look more into this, yeah. uh, Michael Fox's hmm. Proverbs commentary. He he, uh, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but I I do remember that he does as well as anybody on that question. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So uh, Proverbs 23, 23, I, I bought that book. Uh, I have that and uh, I, I just haven't looked at it yet. So that's a great tip. I'll, I'll jump into that later. Um, so, so moving on to the date, um, I know that the dates can be, can be tricky here. Do you have a particular date that, that you give to the book of Proverbs that you're, that you're set on? No, no, I, 
I, I think virtually every biblical book has a history of composition. I don't think, hmm. I don't think there are, I mean, there, there may be like Nahum. I wrote my first commentary on Nahum that might've been written at one time, but certainly not Proverbs. Um, now I think, yeah, I think Solomon is kind of the fountainhead, the historical okay. Solomon's the fountainhead of it. But I, I, I think Solomon himself probably collected Proverbs. Proverbs are things that they're like jokes, you know, they, kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, they kind of arise in situations. So, um, so, and then, but we know that, I mean, let's even take Proverbs 25.1 as a kind of concrete example. Proverbs 25.1 says that the men of Hezekiah did something hmm. with uh, Solomonic Proverbs. Uh, what we yeah. can say for sure about that, that means by the time Solomon died, Proverbs 25 and follow, uh, following was not in the book of Proverbs. Uh, yeah, They were brought in later, even if they are Solomonic Proverbs. Yeah. Um, so we don't have a completed book of of Proverbs. Uh, and Hezekiah lives, um, you know, Hezekiah is, what, around uh, 700 B.C., Solomon's about 300 years before that. Mm -hmm. And then you have this reference to the words of the wise in chapter 23 and 24. And then you get these very uh, kind of, obscure references to Agur and Lemuel uh -huh. at the end of the book. Um, and, uh, and um, uh, yeah, so they're, they're, and it's also interesting that say Proverbs 1, 1, uh, oh, actually Proverbs 1, 10 says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. And then the next superscription said Proverbs 10, 1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, it makes one wonder whether some of the material in one through nine was added later. But, but again, uh, you know, these are interesting questions, but they're highly speculative and they yeah. make no difference to the meaning of the book because yeah. whether or not a book has a history of composition, what's canon to us is the final form of the book. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and so the Holy Spirit, um, not only has uh, uh, inspired the original, like whoever wrote them, but also the compilers and and right. down to the final form. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of anonymous books in the there are yeah. a lot of anonymous books in the Old Testament that we don't know who the authors was. So there are also probably a lot of anonymous uh, later authors whose material, through you know the inspiration of the Spirit, are are brought into the yeah. Well, I think that that's you. You just help me think of that more about proverbs because pro pro proverbial statements uh, are, are passed down from father to son to mm -hmm. you know grandmother said this, and if it's true, it rings true throughout multiple generations. So, pro yeah. so doesn't mean that Solomon had to have them all divinely planted in his head, but that he's getting some from David, who got it from his father, who heard it from him, and maybe all the yeah. way back. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, it's interesting that some of the proverbs seem to come from the royal court, you know, like there's a proverb that says when you're eating with the king, put a knife right. to your throat. It's kind of like, well, obviously, only a few people eat with the king anyway. Now, right. now you can, that has broader application, but it probably emanates from the court. 
Whereas you also have proverbs like uh, a son who does not harvest, that seems to come from an agrarian uh, or folk, more folk background. So, yeah. so it seems from the nature of the proverbs themselves that they come from um, from even different what we would call social location. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. I think about yeah. There's like a lizard in the king's palace, and it's like, yeah. well, how would I know that if I'm an agrarian? Yeah, right. that's a great point. And then, um, and then the other thing is, uh, there are some proverbs. They're hard to notice uh, that this is the case, but there are some proverbs that are repeated verbatim twice in different parts of the book. Yeah, or there are some that are three, and even some that are four times repeated, which may be evidence that you know, proverbs were added by groups and they didn't edit out duplicates. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. So I'm interested in date, at least insofar as like when, when Solomon lived and stuff, because for me, I got this, I got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because I think um, I I like Plato. I like Aristotle. I like reading the guys. I really like philosophy, but thinking about, you know, Plato um, and his position in Western history and philosophy in particular, but history in general, and he's talking about philosopher kings and all this stuff. And yeah. you know, Solomon's like 500 years before him, and he was the philosopher king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, amazing. Yeah, it, it is. It is Parker. And uh, and and again, I I think uh, that is pretty clear, at least in my reading of Proverbs, that Solomon is the fountainhead. So mm-hmm. whether there were later Proverbs that were added under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Still, your point is right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like that. I'm like, you know, let's let's go back to the to Proverbs. Let's see what what uh, divine wisdom says here. And then another thing, I, I another uh, a chip is the Book of Job reads like a proto uh, Platonic dialogue on you know justice or theodicy or you know, and it's it's all these characters going back and forth. But what Plato did uh, with Socrates' mouthpiece, you know, God did in time and space through this book. I, I think it's so fantastic, but I want to bring that to the fore because people are enamored with Plato. I, dude, that's great. But the Bible's here too. Like check this stuff yeah. out. Yeah, no, that's right. That's good. That's good. Well, so another thing um, I, I think of the the Psalms and they're, they're probably singing these Psalms. Uh, they're being read or sung. How are, how are people, what's the, hmm. what's the uh, intended audience for Proverbs? Are they reading these in temple? What's going on with that? Yeah, that's the $64,000 question, as <laughs> say. Um, so first of all, I mean, you can tell from the preface, you know, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, it functions kind of like a preface of a book. Yeah. And it, it first of all, says um, that these Proverbs are for the, uh, the immature, which is the way I prefer to translate petit, which is simple-minded, the young and immature. Hmm. And then you see, too, of course, the dynamic of Proverbs 1 through 9, that a father speaking to his son or sons. Mm -hmm. Uh, But interestingly, going back to that preface, it goes on to say, and let the wise read them and be even wiser. Yeah. So, um, So this book isn't just for young, immature men. It's for everybody because everybody can grow in wisdom. Uh, everybody can grow in wisdom. Wisdom is not like a PhD, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, once I had my PhD, 
I'm Dr. Longman. Even if I would, heaven forbid, have a stroke tonight and couldn't speak, I'd uh, still be Dr. Longman. Yeah. But, and that has to do with more IQ than EQ. (laughs) Whereas Mm -hmm. with wisdom, you can grow in wisdom. And indeed, I think the book of Job, you know, Job's fears God at the beginning. He's wise at the beginning, but he's even wiser at the end. That's a great point. Yeah. And, uh, and you can lose wisdom as Solomon indicates. So, um, so wisdom is something that always needs to be uh, nurtured and, and fed. Uh, But now, your question also raises the issue of social location again. I mean, um, it's possible that Proverbs functioned within a school-like setting. Hmm. So, so we don't have any explicit evidence of schools as such uh, until the post-Old Testament period, mm-hmm. uh, the intertestamental time period. Uh, so you have to be a little careful about insisting on that. Uh, right. So, um, but other other uh, relate uh, other neighboring cultures like in ancient Sumer and Babylon, we know that, and in Egypt, these types of texts function in a school setting as well. Okay. So, but I but I do think we have, but it's probably more likely that it function within a family setting. Okay. So, so unfortunately, we're mostly speculating when we get to the issue of social location. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really helpful. That's another one that that's just yeah, opening up a lot of doors for me. But again, got to be careful not to not to over absolutize or, or uh, speculate there. So, I thought maybe we could just run through briefly. I know, like this is hours and and weeks and years of your life's work, but uh, just just kind of giving a brief overview. For folks at home, uh, I'm, I'm planning to do a whole series on, on you know, 30 episodes on Proverbs. Oh, great. So, yeah, so so we'll be going into this in more depth, but just kind of a, a an overview from from your work. Um, so one one through seven is is a preamble or a prelude, um, what you said. Uh, and can you just help us? I, I use this language. It wasn't yours, so feel free to correct it. But I see it as like setting the, the hermeneutic of how we're supposed to read Proverbs is this anthology of wisdom. It, it's setting the tone. It's it's fixing your gaze. Um, is that correct? Do you think that's right? Yeah. No, I do think that's right. Yeah. I, okay. I think both the preface and then Proverbs 1 through 9 as a whole kind of functions as what I call a hermeneutical lens to read Proverbs okay. and following as well. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, that... That's the lens where where um where Lady Wisdom is brought in. Yeah, that's right. And so and and in those first nine chapters, you have um, little you know speeches or discourses or lectures. You don't um, you have the occasional proverb. You know, mm-hmm. proverb defined as a short, pithy, memorable observation, admonition. Usually, just. Uh, one verse or maybe a couple verses, but in one through nine, you have uh, these lengthier speeches where a father's talking to his son mm-hmm. uh, or woman wisdom is talking to all the men who go by. Yeah. Okay. And th- there's like this, there's an emphasis that I've, that I've caught through, through Proverbs of if you're wise, you'll listen to your elders. You'll listen to your father. You'll listen to lady wisdom. She knows better than you. And then, going all the way to the end there, uh, 
uh, with with King Lemuel, he's listening to his mother. Yeah. So it's actually being practiced out. So like taking inter intergenerational uh, wisdom and applying it to your life because they've lived longer than you. And so right. I can be, I can have this accumulation of my father's wisdom and my own wisdom. Right. Uh, and, and so don't have to relearn their, their lessons the hard way. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and of course that presupposes that your father is wise, himself, right. which yeah. isn't always the case. I mean, uh, but the assumption is an older person has more wisdom than a younger person because they've had more experiences, they've mm. observed, they've reflected, they've learned from their mistakes. Yeah. And uh, so, so again, it's, it, it, uh, that's the, that's kind of the default. Uh, but there are, I mean, the three friends of Job are a good example mm. of, of older men who aren't wise yeah. in this situation. And yeah, that's a great point. Need to be rejected. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in this, in this section that we're talking about, you have lady wisdom calling and this has been, uh, what, what I accidentally found was a, a source of controversy in, in different evangelical circles and stuff, but that lady met lady wisdom as a metaphor for Christ or an analogy or, you know, wisdom personified, how should we think about lady wisdom and Christ? Sure. So let's first of all, uh, stay within the old Testament and then we'll go to the New Testament. Yeah, so uh, as we read it in the Old Testament, um, to repeat myself a bit, woman wisdom um, is a personification of Yahweh's wisdom and uh, ultimately stands for God himself. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a personification treating an abstract or inanimate object as a person mm -hmm. is a kind of metaphor. So yeah, you're right. It is a metaphor of God and his wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, now, when we turn to the New Testament, we see in various places where Jesus is being associated with woman wisdom. And I'll come back to this word associate rather than identify. Mm. Um, that in Matthew 11, Jesus says to his Jewish disputants, he says, but wisdom will be proved right by her actions, mm -hmm. which is a reference to his actions. In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image God. He's the firstborn of creation, which is a reference to Proverbs 8 and woman wisdom being the firstborn of creation. Yeah. And the language of John 1, 1 in the beginning uh, was the word and the word was God. The word was with God uh, is a uh, also, of course, looking more directly to Genesis 1, but also right. having intimations of Proverbs 8. And then um, and then finally, there's a passage in Revelation, Revelation 3. I forget the exact verse where uh Jesus is called the rule. I mean, yeah, uh, Jesus is identified as, I think, the ruler of God's creation, which is a Greek translation of Proverbs 8.30, a rare word, amon, hmm. uh, which sometimes is translated nursling, but should probably be translated something like craftsperson. Hmm. So, so, so Jesus is, the New Testament associates Jesus with woman wisdom, whom Larry said represents God's wisdom and ultimately God himself. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why I don't say identify is because Proverbs 
8 is not a prophecy of Jesus. Yeah. It, it's really by associating Jesus with woman wisdom, it's a way of saying Jesus is the very epitome of God's wisdom. Yeah. And the reason why you have to avoid the idea of identification, and you always have to remember that this is poetic language, right? is because if you start treating it as non-poetic language or as prophecy or a description of Jesus, then you're going to end up um, a Jehovah witness. Right, know? right. Yeah, Jesus was created. Yeah, the son was. Literally the firstborn of creation. That's a metaphor that just is a way of associating him. Yeah, as the preeminent one, not the yeah, literally right. born in temporal meaning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah, I really like that. Do you, some some people will will point uh, back to Lady Wisdom, especially in Proverbs eight, and and talk about a uh, uh, diversity in the Godhead, or at least opening up, uh, you know, the seeds of that 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 are then uh, more fully revealed in Christ. Is there is there anything there? Would would Jews have have caught that, or or not really? Um, they would not have caught that. Okay. <laughs> and I also don't think that is a legitimate way of reading okay. Proverbs 8. Uh, yeah, so... That's helpful. <laughs> yeah. oh, I think that's, that's super direct. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, that. That's not my view, but I've heard people say that. Oh, no, right. Yeah. Yeah, um, so, yeah. yeah. please go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and we have to be mindful of those types of uh, well-intentioned, but... Um, uh, wrong-minded uses of the Old Testament. Yeah. That if you you know you're evangelizing a, a a Jewish person, they'll go to their rabbi and they'll ask him and they'll say, you know, no, it never would have been read that way in the Old Testament time period, and they would have been they would be right about that. Yeah. There's other places to go. Yeah. Than yeah. than Proverbs eight. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, that's great. That's really going to be that's helpful for my listeners, I'm sure. So uh, then we move on to uh, Solomonic Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 10, 1 through 22, uh, 16, um, all the way to uh, what was it, 29, uh, 27, I think. That's like the, the Solomonic Proverbs. Then you have uh, sayings of the wise, 22, 17 through 24, 34. Yeah. Um, are the sayings of the wise, I know we, we talked about compilation already, but are, are, do we know, are these sayings of the wise that, that Solomon picked up and said, I've, I've learned these things, I'm going to put them in here, or, or is that, we don't know? Uh, we don't we don't know. Okay. Uh, sure, it could have been that. It could have been that this is a section that was added later. What we do know is that the Proverbs in this section bear a higher degree of similarity with Egyptian Proverbs hmm. Than other parts, even though other parts do too. By the way, I did another Proverbs commentary in John Walton's Sondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Dictionary. Okay. Uh, and the whole purpose of that commentary is to talk about the connections with the ancient Near East. Hmm. So, um, so there's a particularly close connection with one Egyptian instruction, which is called the Instructions of Amenemope that are older than Solomon and, uh, and they're, uh, and, and they're 30 chapters in this instruction of Amen Mope. And then, as you know, the words of the wise are introduced as having 30 sayings in them. So a lot of scholars see, uh, that, that here's an example where the, 
where the Israelite sages, whether it's Solomon or others, are are learning from Egyptian wisdom. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that's great. That's uh that's like I guess Augustine says we can plunder the Egyptians, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, they literally were. Yeah. What other theologians call common grace. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. So um so we got sayings the wise, then we get to uh, uh, Proverbs thirty and the sayings of uh, is it Agur, Agur, Agur? I always say Agur. Agur. That sounds good. I like that. <laughs> sayings of Agur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how are these sayings different than the sayings of the wise, or how, how do they compare with with the rest of the proverbs? Um. Well, um, let's see here. Um, yeah, I mean, they're uh, for one thing, they're uh, harder to translate, perfect. <laughs> but um, and they also are not similar to the what I've been describing as these short kind of two line right. proverbs. Um, but in other ways, I mean, they are wisdom. They are um, advice that's being imparted to the audience. We don't know who Agor and Lemuel are um some people try to argue that there are other names for solomon but we have always yeah i've always heard growing up in church saying oh no it's just it's solomon it's like well it doesn't say that i don't get where you get that from we have no evidence that that's the case and i i I think that arises from people who want to insist that solomon wrote the whole book okay uh which uh which some people think is necessary to assure it's um, divine authority, and I don't. I, yeah. I, I, as we talked about earlier, um, God uses a variety of human authors, number of whose names we know, and a number of a number of them we don't know. We don't know who wrote the Book of Joshua, or Judges, or Chronicles. We don't know who wrote a lot of the Psalms that aren't ascribed to an yeah. author, or or who the sons of Korah are, really. <laughs> right. Well, I've heard that that might be a, a characteristic that distinguishes uh, Christians or at least evangelical Christians from um, Jewish readers who I, I think Jewish readers wanted to make sure everyone was associated with a with a prophet or with the author that they knew. Is, is, uh, that, is that a fair characterization or not really? Um, I, I'm not sure. Well, it's certainly not true of every Jewish right. person. And it's and it is I mean, there are some Christians who get very nervous if you can't associate mm. it. But, oh, well, what is true is that within um, within Jewish thinking, there is this, this tendency to associate even anonymous writings with a particular right. personage. Yeah. But it's based on no historical evidence. It's like eventually by the time you come to uh, – so virtually every psalm eventually gets ascribed to David, for instance. Okay. So, But, but again, that's just so uh, – even though within the Hebrew Bible itself, only 74 of the 150 are uh, ascribed to David. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. And and then um, finishing up, we have Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. And this one will be really famous to uh, a lot of the ladies listening. Uh, and it's, it's about, uh, the wise, the wise woman, the, the, uh, well, it's not all about that, but yeah, it's about, um, the Proverbs 31 woman, actually, yeah, yeah. that's what it said. Yeah. So, um, it, I've, 
I've always thought this is, um, as a man, a young man, this is what I want my wife to be like. This is what I'm going to pray for, for my future wife. Uh, and then come to seminary. And one of my professors said, you know, this it's, it's about women, but it's also something that, that men can, can be appropriating as well. And I was confused by that. And I'm not sure. Do you have any thoughts? Is this, um, is this poem here at the end of Proverbs, is, is this wisdom for women or is this wisdom for both men and women? How do we look at this, uh, I guess, from both genders? Well, there, there's no question but that within its Old Testament setting, this is the whole book is primarily addressed to men. Mm-hmm. And, but that doesn't, and, and particularly young men, but that doesn't mean that women can't read it, for instance, and uh, I think one person told me the term is mutatis mutandi. Mm. Uh, start thinking about uh, using the same teaching to think through what a virtuous man is, mm-hmm. or you know, or take the earlier proverbs that say better to live in the corner of an attic than in the house with an irritating woman. If you're a woman reader, you should just substitute man for a woman. Yeah, but I will also say uh, that. Psalm 112 actually helps a lot because it takes a lot of the characteristics that are being ascribed to the virtuous woman Mm -hmm. and are ascribing them to a man, Psalm 112. So if you look at Psalm 112, you'll see that that a lot of the qualities of the virtuous woman are there very explicitly said to be the qualities of a virtuous man. And Psalm 111 is a poem talking about God's wonderful attributes, Mm -hmm. which are then being applied in Psalm 112 to the man. So so, uh, I I wrote a series, I've written a series of books with a psychologist friend. We've been close friends for 50 years named Dan Allender. And Mm -hmm. Dan and I wrote a book called Intimate Allies, where we address this question. Intimate Allies is is a book about marriage. Hmm. We talk about Proverbs 31 in this way, and then we bring in Psalm 112 and Psalm 111. So so, yeah, that's that's how I think about it. I think that, you know, um, you know, I I, I think it says who can find such a woman uh, and you probably can't <laughs> <laughs> or who could find such a man. You can't. I mean, yeah. uh, I think it's, 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 it's taking all the attributes of wisdom. I mean, there's so much we could say about this in terms of what it frees women up to do, particularly mm-hmm. in a patriarchal society. That's a know? great point. Yeah. And uh but on the other hand, through my teaching over the years, I know that some women love it and find it freeing, and some women find it oppressive mm-hmm. and difficult. And uh, and and I think one of the things is that um, that there are qualities we all should aspire to: generosity to the poor, hardworking to help our families out, yeah, skilled at what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a great point. So as as we uh, finish up here, um, you you talk about two uh, pitfalls that that should be avoided uh, when we go about thinking about the proverbs. One is absolutizing the proverbs, and two is isolating the proverbs. Now, I, I think you you wrote this book a long time ago, so uh, I, I I'm asking you to kind of recall a lot of this. Do you, is that still fresh? Do you still know what you meant by that? Oh yeah, sure. Okay, cool. 
So we don't want to absolutize Proverbs because getting back to what I mentioned at the front is uh, Proverbs as a genre aren't universal truths. Mm -hmm. They're only true when applied in the right situation. Right. Being a wise person means you need to know more than the Proverbs. You have to learn how to read situations and how to read people. Mm -hmm. So you have Proverbs 26 verses four and five. Don't answer a fool according to his yes. folly. Follow immediately by answer a fool according to his folly. Mm -hmm. And so you see, you have to, when you get into a situation with somebody that you uh, believe is, is foolish and what they're arguing or saying or doing, you then have to analyze the situation. Will it help or hurt for me to interact with this person? Hmm. Uh, are there other people around who might benefit from my interacting with this person? Yeah. Uh, and and on and on. So, so um, I mean, there are some proverbs that are always true. I mean, like, yeah. don't sleep with an immoral woman who's not your wife, those types of proverbs. But you know that because they're, you know, they're, uh, we know that not because of the proverb, but because of the seventh commandment, yeah, which it's reflecting. And uh, yeah, so that's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, my former colleague and good friend, Bruce Walkey, puts it this way. Yeah. Proverbs don't make promises. You know, don't mm. treat proverbs as promises. Lazy hands are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. Uh, that doesn't guarantee that if you work hard, you'll get rich. Or, um, But for 99% of people, if you're lazy, you're going to get fired and you're going to struggle. But, but then you have the Paris Hiltons of the world who inherit mm -hmm. a lot of money. That's right. <laughs> it can yeah. be. Yeah. So um, so those are some thoughts on on that topic. Yeah. That's really helpful. So um, as, I, as we bring it to a close here, Solomon wrote, you know, he's the fountainhead of this. Uh, he turned out to be kind of a fool at the yeah. end of his life. Um, can you just explain how a man who could be so, so, so wise became so foolish? Uh, well, I mean, First Kings 11 tells us because he fell in love with uh, pagan women. He did exactly mm. what he warned against in Proverbs 5 to 7, you know, mm. and he uh, let them lure him into the worship of false gods. And it's a reminder that even the wisest person can lose their wisdom and become become fools. And so we should always be mindful of uh, of guarding our hearts and and our minds. Yeah. What a tragic story, but yeah, so so true, so so good. Like he it's right there in Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it repeats over and over. Uh and he didn't do it. He he stopped doing it. And so that's always a reminder to me as well. Like he was wiser than I'll ever be, um, but if if he could fall, then so could I. Yeah, yeah. So I so I better just keep keep following Lady Wisdom, keep following the path, you know, keep following Christ. You know, He's the the path. He is the way. He is the true uh, a source of of wisdom and salvation and life. Yeah, right, right. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, uh, Doctor Longman, thank you so much for all your time. This has been so helpful and it's really set up the uh, the whole series that that Lord willing I'll be able to do. And uh, have I'm still looking to to get in contact with Bruce Walkie as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, to have some more some more uh, scholars on to help me with this series as we uh, preempt the Jordan Peterson series and hopefully bring a lot of good teaching to 
people who need wisdom, uh, just like we do. Great. Yeah. Amen, Parker. Well, awesome. This has been uh, Parker's Pensies. We'll talk about this some more in the future, but for now, it's going to have to do it. And as always, all glory to God.